Here on Stolen Lives, we discuss brutal and heartbreaking cases against children. Themes may include child murder, torture, and sexual, domestic, and child abuse. I do try my best to remain respectful for the babies in these stories and leave out unnecessary details that honestly none of us need to know to understand the frustration of why and how this ever happened. However, if you find any of these themes triggering, this podcast may not be for you. Listener discretion is advised. This week's episode is a listener suggestion. Thank you to my amazing writer and researcher, Emma, for bringing this case to my attention and for also offering to take on the difficult and heartbreaking task of writing and researching the story I'm bringing to you all today. Emma does an amazing job here for Stolen Lives, as well as other podcasts. Thank you, Emma, for everything you do. August 3rd, 2007. A panicked mother called 999, telling the dispatcher her 17-month-old baby boy wasn't breathing and he was blue. The dispatcher walked her through CPR and resuscitation measures, whilst an ambulance rushed to the Haringey North London address. Minutes later, paramedics arrived at what could only be described as a house of horrors. What would unfold next would be one of Britain's most horrific child abuse cases. Most shocking of all, the council responsible for the safety of Baby P already had blood on their hands from a similar shocking case. This is Baby P's, Peter's story. Few can ever forget the cruelty and brutality inflicted on little Peter Connolly, known as Baby P. He suffered 50 injuries, including a broken back. His mother, Tracy Connolly, was jailed in 2009 after admitting causing or allowing the death of her 17-month-old son. Baby P had received 60 visits from social workers, police and health professionals. Tracy Connolly had a less than ideal childhood. Her mother, Mary O'Connor, reportedly suffered from a substance abuse disorder, with alcohol being her drug of choice. Tracy grew up in Islington, London and it was clear from the start there were significant issues. When she was a child, she was placed into a boarding school for children with social and emotional difficulties to guide her on the right path. When Tracy left the boarding school, she was sent to live with a relative who would like to be exposed as a pedophile. According to the Guardian newspaper, quote, This relative became involved in an alleged pedophile ring that operated in the authorities' care system in the 1990s, as a victim, procure and abuser, unquote. At 16, Tracy met a man only known as Mr A, who at 33 years old was more than double her age. The two started a relationship, and within months they were married and expecting. They would go on to have four children, and according to reports the relationship was anything but stable, a reflection of the relationships Tracy had observed growing up. After the birth of each child, Tracy fell into a deep depression, a condition we would now recognise as postnatal depression. In mid-2005, Tracy found out she was expecting again, this time with a boy. Tracy's pregnancy went smoothly and she attended all of her appointments. The couple were excited about their new arrival, but the joy would be short-lived. The excitement of a new child could not mask the apparent problems within the relationship, Whilst pregnant, Tracy met Stephen Barker, who had taken a keen liking to her. 
he would come to their Haringey home almost every day and lay on the sofa, waiting for Tracy to cook him a meal. He sounds like such a catch already. Make your own damn sandwich. Mr A was enraged at the thought of another man in his home while he was working long hours to provide for their family. On March 1st, 2006, Tracy and Mr A welcomed their son, Peter Connolly, into the world. Peter's bright blue eyes and curly blonde locks captured the hearts of the midwives. There was an endless line of people waiting to coo over the adorable little boy and wish him well in life. Little did they know, just 17 months later, baby Peter would be back in the hospital. A month or so after Peter was born, Tracy and her husband, Mr A, would split up, with Mr A leaving the home. It took Tracy only a matter of days to announce her new relationship with Stephen Barker. The timeline here is somewhat murky, but we do know that Stephen Barker moved into the home shortly after the two got together. Before he officially moved in, Stephen would spend all his time at the home, and according to Tracy's mother, Stephen took well to Peter. He would feed him, play with him, and nurture him. But things slowly began to change. Peter was a bright, bubbly, and endearing little baby, and was curious about the world around him. He never failed to make anyone smile with his cheeky grin and outgoing personality. However, months after Stephen Barker had moved into the home, illegally, which I will explain later, but Peter became terrified of him. Mary O'Connor told the Guardian newspaper she noticed her grandson would scream and crawl away from Stephen as soon as he entered the room. Tracy was more interested in her relationship with Stephen than her duties to Peter. She ignored his screams, telling her mother Peter was afraid of Stephen because of his imposing six-foot-four frame. September 2006, when Peter was six months old, his mother took him to the doctor with a cough and a nappy rash. According to the serious case review that was ordered into Peter's case, Tracy made a strange comment to her doctor. She told the doctor that Peter bruised easily, and she was afraid she'd be suspected of abusing him. Which, to me, in saying that, you are saying that you or someone close to you is abusing your child, because why say it otherwise? Why would that thought enter your mind otherwise? Regardless, this conversation was noted down, but it does not appear that any action was taken. Months earlier, a health visitor had put Peter's file in a blue folder to denote a cause for concern. This was because, as a child, Tracy had been on the Child Protection Register, and because of her history, having been in a boarding school for children with emotional issues and in the care system herself. Whilst these are not red flags in themselves, and those who have been through the system are not bad parents. But what that should have meant was that Tracy was given extra support and resources to help her, especially given her postnatal depression diagnosis. A month later, on October 13, 2006, Tracy returned to her doctor with Peter. She alleged that Peter had fallen down the stairs the day prior. The doctor who examined the little boy noted bruising to the left breast and left cranium. This should have been a cause for concern, and in the UK, anyone in a position of power, such as a doctor, nurse, teacher, etc., they are mandatory reporters. And as part of that, they are required to report suspected abuse to social services. But instead, the doctor told Tracy to put a baby gate on the stairs so that Peter did not hurt himself again. Tracy Connolly was slowly setting the scene for what would be Peter's eventual death. Earlier, I mentioned that Stephen Barker had moved in somewhat illegally, 
Let's talk more about that now. Tracy, Peter and the other children have been placed in council housing, and she received government benefits for her children and herself. She repeatedly told social workers that no men lived in the home, which would have affected her government benefits. Now, I use the term illegally in the sense that Stephen was living there under the radar, and therefore not under the watchful eye of social services. The very services tasked with the protection of Peter. December 11, 2006. Tracy called the doctor's surgery again, explaining that Peter's head was swollen. Tracy showed little urgency and should have taken her son to the hospital in the first instance. After being examined by his doctor, Peter was immediately set to the Whittington Hospital. Dr Heather McKinnon was on duty that night and was assigned to Peter's case. Dr McKinnon had worked as a consultant paediatrician for many years, but what she saw that day has scarred her for life. When Tracy and Peter arrived at the hospital, Tracy told Dr McKinnon that Peter had fallen from the sofa. But Dr McKinnon saw straight through her lies. According to the serious case review into Peter's death, a body map was created, which showed Peter had severe bruising to his forehead, buttocks, face and chest. Months earlier, Tracy had tried to plant the seed of a condition being responsible for Peter's bruising. But tests showed that Peter suffered from no such condition that could cause him to bruise easily. After examining Peter, Dr McKinnon wrote in her notes, quote, not to be allowed home, police protection order if necessary, unquote. For the first time in his short life, someone was on his side. On December 15, 2006, Peter was discharged into the care of a family friend. On December 15, 2006, Peter was discharged into the care of a family friend, whilst Tracy and her mother, Mary O'Connor, were arrested and charged with assault. Peter was also placed on the Child Protection Register by Haringey Social Services, the same social services that failed Victoria Columbia just seven years earlier, and we covered Victoria's abuse and murder back in episode 91. According to social services, Peter flourished in his new environment. He gained weight and returned to that happy, smiley boy again. His shy yet cheeky personality began to shine through. And most significantly, for social services... Peter did not obtain any new bruises or injuries whilst in the care of the family friend. The peace for Peter would be short-lived, though, and on January 26, 2007, Peter Connolly was handed back over to his mother, Tracy, in a move that Peter would be the one to pay for with his life. The reasons for social services handing Peter back to his mother who had been investigated by police for assault and neglect, remains unknown. Maria Ward became the key social worker in Peter's case, and during her assessment of the home, she noted it was dirty, filthy and stank of urine. Multiple dogs lived in the home and were allowed to urinate everywhere inside, along with Tracy smoking 60 cigarettes a day indoors. And what was the solution to this? Give the family a new home? Tracy was given a new home in Tottenham, which still falls under Haringey Council. This gave the family a fresh start. Social services were again under the impression it was just Tracy and the children. But Stephen Barker had weaseled his way into the home once more. According to official reports, social services were highly involved in Peter's life, so how did they miss so many warning signs? And it wasn't just Peter that found himself at the mercy of his mother – 
In March 2007, a school nurse called the social worker to report that Tracy had slapped and shouted at one of her older children. Disturbingly, the child confirmed the incident, and Tracy was told she needed to attend a parenting course. However, the incident was marked as NFA, no further action. Maria Ward, the social worker in charge of Peter's case, stepped up her involvement, making both announced and unannounced visits to the Connolly home. And this is a common occurrence in the UK, but these unannounced visits angered Tracy to the point she lashed out at Maria. Tracy defended her actions, saying she was angry because of the unannounced visits and the high frequency of them, that they were disturbing her and her children's lives. In reality, Tracy was angered by the visits, especially the unannounced ones, because she had little to no time to hide the abuse she was subjecting her youngest son to. In the wake of Peter's murder, a friend of Tracy's came forward and told the police that in April 2007, she witnessed Peter sitting outside eating dirt, looking bruised, sullen and withdrawn. Tracy's attitude towards her children was one of independence and self-reliance once they were old enough to crawl or walk. Tracy regularly slept past dinner time or laid on the sofa drinking and watching TV. Stephen Barker would also do the same, spending much of his time watching pornography whilst the children had to fend for themselves. Two days after Peter was spotted eating dirt alone in the garden, his mother took him to the North Middlesex Hospital. The nurse who tended to Peter reported the same injury as the friend who spotted him days earlier. A large, what she called boggy swelling, had taken over the left side of his head. He also presented with neck pain, a circular bruise to his right cheek, a rash on his arms and head lice. This time Tracy claimed that Peter had been pushed into a marble fireplace by an older child. She also alleged the incident had taken place four days before Peter presented at emergency. So why did she wait so long to seek medical attention? According to the Serious Case Review... The rash on Peter's arms was a cause for concern, and he was admitted so he could be tested for meningitis. By the time Peter was okayed for discharge, the large, boggy swelling on the left side of his head was gone. Peter's tests were also negative for meningitis, and he was free to return home to the House of Horrors. Peter continued to suffer at the hands of his mother, her boyfriend, and other adults in the home. In June 2007, 35-year-old Jason Owen, the brother of Stephen Barker, moved into the Connolly home with his 15-year-old girlfriend. I use that word lightly, as a 15-year-old should not be with a man over twice her age. Maria Ward, Peter's assigned social worker, visited the family and found a horrifying sight. Peter was lying on the sofa underneath a blanket, almost motionless. His tiny body was covered in scratches and bruises. Maria ordered Tracy to take Peter to the North Middlesex University Hospital for an assessment. Here, doctors would discover scratches, scrapes and bruises all over his tiny body. But again, these were deemed accidental, as a result of rough play with an older child. The police were alerted, but they simply handed Peter's case back over to social workers. No further action. And social services were happy for Peter to be discharged as a family friend was staying with Tracy for a few days and they believed this would help safeguard him. Over the next month, the police and social services would meet several times to discuss Peter's case. He had presented several more times to his doctor with unexplained injuries. This time the Metropolitan Police chose to act, but it would be too late. 
Tracy's contact and supervision of Peter was severely limited, but issues arose with the childminder who was supposed to care for Peter. The full details of this case are available through the Serious Case Review, and it provides an almost day-to-day breakdown of the actions of the Metropolitan Police and Social Services. June 30, 2007 would mark the final interaction Maria Ward had with Peter and Tracy. That afternoon, Maria visited Tracy's home, all whilst the Metropolitan Police were considering bringing about more assault charges against her. As per Maria Ward's report, Peter sat in his pram and appeared alert, although she did note he was somewhat restless and fidgety, likely from being overtired. Maria Ward noted that Peter's ears were red and inflamed, as was his scalp. According to the childminder, who had no longer been able to care for Peter and his siblings, he was suffering from head lice and or a scalp infection. The doctors were apparently hesitant to give Peter head lice solution, as they feared it may trigger an allergic reaction similar to the reaction he had when they thought he had meningitis. When Maria Ward took a closer look at Peter, she noticed something odd. Chocolate was smeared over his hands and face. Maria asked that Peter be cleaned up, to which the family friend obliged. But Peter never materialised before the end of the visit. Investigators would come to find out that Tracy and the adults in the home had deliberately smeared Peter's tiny face and hands with chocolate, to hide the horrific abuse they had subjected him to. On August 1st, 2007, two days before his death, baby Peter was seen by Dr Sabah El-Zayat at St Anne's Hospital. Dr Sabah El-Zayat would come under fire in the days after Peter's murder for reasons that would become apparent very soon. In her notes, Dr Sabah El-Zayat noted that Peter was cranky and miserable, most likely the result of a viral infection. She also noted he was underweight for his age group and that his mother had reported worrying symptoms. Tracy tearfully told Dr Sabah El-Zayat that Peter had become aggressive towards other children, regularly biting them, headbutting them and was hyperactive. This behaviour, she claimed, was partly responsible for Peter's injuries and social services were embarking on a witch hunt to have him removed from her care. This performance was all a ploy to get medical staff on her side, and disturbingly, it worked. Dr Sabah El-Zayat performed a physical examination of Peter and told Tracy to see her doctor if his symptoms did not subside in a few days. Peter was once again let go, slipping through the cracks of the system designed to protect him. August 2nd, 2007 was a cause for celebration for Tracy and Stephen, as the Metropolitan Police and Haringey Social Services announced that no criminal charges were being sought against Tracy Connolly. Hurrah, this was the last chance to save Peter's life, and yet again he was fouled. At 11.35am on August 3rd, 2007, Tracy Connolly called 999 in a panic. Her 17-month-old son Peter was not breathing or moving and he had turned blue. This 999 call was about to bring to light one of the worst instances of child abuse the UK has ever seen. When ambulance crews found Peter, he was naked except for a nappy. As Peter was being transferred into an ambulance, Tracy told the crews to wait a minute as she needed to grab her cigarettes. Her sobbing and wailing ceased for a moment as she grabbed her things and returned to her son's side. 
Peter was transported to the North Middlesex University Hospital, where he was declared dead less than an hour later. When asked about her son's medical history and whether he had been unwell in the days prior to his death, Tracy coldly answered, quote, Yes, he was unwell last night, but I didn't bring him to the hospital because I get accused of hurting him. Unquote. A post-mortem was ordered, and Tracy Connolly was immediately placed under arrest. Tracy appeared to be more upset at the prospect of being arrested than the death of her 17-month-old son. In their report, the coroner noted baby Peter had injuries to his fingers, including soft tissue loss to the right middle finger, evidence that his fingertips had been sliced off with a Stanley knife, and his fingernails had been pulled out with pliers, at least seven fractures to his ribs, a broken spinal cord that Dr. Sabah El-Zayat missed. According to reports, the fractured spinal cord was likely caused when Peter was forcefully held over a banister or cot, with a large amount of pressure being applied to his back. Action Against Abuse commented, quote, The force was equivalent to that sustained in a car crash. Unquote. Peter had severe cuts to the top of his head, gashes to his head believed to have been caused by animal or human bites, bruises across his left temple. His left ear had been ripped away from his head, cuts to his neck and chin, missing skin from his lips and tongue, a ripped frenulum, and that's the piece of skin under the tongue. It had been ripped away too, a gum injury, evidence that his front tooth had been knocked out of his mouth, and this tooth would be later found in his stomach and may have actually caused his eventual death. A fractured shin bone, missing skin to his nose, blackened fingernails and toenails, what was left of them anyway, and a multitude of bruises that covered every inch of his body. The coroner created a body map, and there was no single area free from injury. The coroner's office has never released Baby P's cause of death, but it has been speculated it was impossible to pinpoint, simply due to the amount of torturous injuries this sweet baby boy had suffered. Stephen's brother, Jason Owen, would later tell the police that before Peter's death, quote, Tracy and Stephen wrapped him up like a cocoon and laid him face down on the floor and left him there all day, unquote. Jason and Stephen quickly turning on each other, with Stephen alleging that Jason disposed of baby Peter's cot. The Metropolitan Police confirmed that every single item of clothing Peter owned was covered in blood. Shortly after the autopsy results were released, Jason Owen and Stephen Barker were arrested on suspicion of murder. The trial of all three involved were highly publicised, and the name Baby P is unfortunately known all too well in the UK. At first, the media did not name him, but his name and identity were soon leaked to the press. There was significant public outrage over his murder and the trial to come. Without getting into the complex legalities, Tracy Connolly was able to plead guilty to a lesser charge of causing or allowing the death of a child or vulnerable person. And this came down to the lack of evidence to secure a murder conviction. Stephen Barker and Jason Owen decided to take their cases to trial, where they were found guilty of the same charges. This lesser charge outraged the British public. Essentially, one or more of these people had murdered a defenceless 17-month-old baby and they were getting away with it. Disgustingly, Tracy Connolly and Stephen Barker were taken to trial in mid-2009 under different names for different charges. This time, the sickening duo were accused of raping a two-year-old, 
who incidentally was also on the child protection register with Haringe Social Services. Stephen Barker was found guilty of this crime, while Tracy was not. For causing or allowing the death of baby P, Tracy Connolly, Peter's mother, was sentenced to indefinite imprisonment with a minimum term of five years. This sentence meant she was at the mercy of the prisons and parole board, who would have the final say over whether she was ever to be released to the public. Shockingly, in mid-2022, her parole bid was accepted, and she was paroled later that year. Two months ago, as the parole board decided she should be released, the Justice Secretary asked them to reconsider. Having carefully read the decision, I've decided to apply to the parole board to seek their reconsideration. Today, as they rejected the government's challenge against their ruling, Mr Raab tweeted, Tracy Connolly's cruelty towards her son, baby Peter, was pure evil. The decision to release her demonstrates why the parole board needs a fundamental overhaul, including a ministerial check for the most serious offenders, so that it serves and protects the public. As various serious case reviews analysed the tragic life of baby P, Connolly was let out of prison on licence by 2013. She was recalled in 2015 for breaching her parole conditions. Legal experts say the parole board will have considered the onslaught of media attention and scrutiny she's about to receive. Where uh, media and public outrage come into it is actually considering the protection of that individual, you know, uh, and uh, stopping that individual, you know, uh, from being a victim of uh, harm as a result of vigilantes, etc., uh, etc., et and how that may impact that person's well-being once they're in the community and how they go in to react. Connolly could now be free within weeks, but she will face restrictions on where she goes and who she contacts. Julian Drucker, 5 News. Tracy Connolly has attempted to change her appearance by dyeing her hair and wearing new clothes, but people have quickly figured out who she is. Stephen Barker was sentenced to life in prison for the rape of the two-year-old with a minimum term of 10 years, plus 12 years for causing or allowing the death of baby P. Jason Owen received a similar sentence to Tracy, with a minimum term of just three years. These prison terms are insane, and the sentencing caused panic and outrage in the UK, obviously. Many felt that social services and the legal system were no longer fit for purpose. Stephen Barker and Jason Owen are still being held in prison, but they apply for parole at any given chance. Baby P's death launched a serious case review and inquiries from the British government. The media sensationalised the story, and according to Peter's social worker Maria Wood, they created a witch hunt against her and her colleagues at Haringey Social Services. It is evident not just through the case of Baby P, but the cases of hundreds of other children across the UK that the social service system is not fit for purpose. According to the Serious Case Review, the agencies involved in Peter's short life, there was a damning list of those who found him. Haringe Social Services, Haringe Teaching Primary Care Trust, Whittington Hospital Trust, North Middlesex University Hospital, Great Ormond Street Hospital, the Metropolitan Police Service, the Epic Trust and Family Welfare Association, two schools, Haringe's Legal Services and Haringe Strategic and Community Housing Association. Social care in the UK requires an overhaul from top to bottom. Social workers are overworked and underpaid, and social care systems are given far too many caseloads to manage safely and effectively. 
Governments across the UK failed to allocate the necessary budgets for services such as these to run correctly, leading to catastrophic failures such as the murder of Baby P and Victoria Columbia. And that's just to name two. I can keep going. Arthur Lobinho Hughes, Lola James, Finlay Bowden, Star Hobson. However, at the end of the day, we are all responsible for calling out things we think are wrong. Rest in peace, Baby P. Peter. You are remembered by everyone in Britain and around the world. If you have your own thoughts and theories on the case we discussed today, or any case we talk about on Stolen Lives, please search Stolen Lives on Facebook, like the page so you don't miss an episode, and join the discussion group to talk about your thoughts and theories. You can also talk to us on Twitter, search lives underscore stolen, or on Instagram, Stolen Lives Podcast. If you like what you heard today, we would appreciate it if you share this episode on your social media of choice. And subscribe and leave a positive review on your podcast app. Today's episode was researched and written by me, Ali. Hosting and production was also by me, Ali. Music is by Mayu.